Hello and welcome to the Law Down Under podcast with Barrister Chris Patterson, where we'll give you insights into the law in New Zealand and Australia, its application and the law's future. Each episode features a new guest who will inspire your interest in the law and give you a greater understanding of the legal issues that help shape our justice system here down under. We thank you for tuning in and enjoy the podcast. Well, 2022, first podcast of the year. I am so excited to have with me in the little recording studio here in my chambers, Associate Professor, oh, it's Associate Dean, isn't it? Uh, Nikki Chamberlain. Now, Nikki Chamberlain is an Associate Dean of Equity and Senior Lecturer at Auckland University's Law School. Nikki graduated from the University of Auckland in 2007 with a Bachelor of Law with Honours and a Bachelor of Arts in Film, Television and Media Studies. Nikki received her Master of Law uh, in the United States at Vanderbilt University in 2016, where she was made the Dean's List for Academic Excellence in both semesters. Nikki also lectured legal writing at Vanderbilt University. Prior to lecturing, Nikki practiced for eight years in the litigation and dispute resolution team at the Auckland uh, firm of Minter Allison Rudd Watts. She was a senior associate and practiced in a number of commercial law areas, including contract law, tort law, company law, family law, insolvency law, trust litigation, professional negligence litigation, estate litigation. Her clients included many large banks, corporations. She also represented a number of high net worth individuals in their relationship property disputes. She's appeared as counsel in the New Zealand Court of Appeal, the High Court, the District Court and the Family Court. Now, Nikki is currently teaching torts and complex litigation, privacy and family property. She's also published extensively on class action litigation in New Zealand and the United States. Nikki is an appointed member of the expert advisory panel for the New Zealand Law Commission's Review of Class Actions and Litigation Funding. She recently won a Cable Research Impact Award for her research on class actions, litigation funding, and is regularly cited in the media. Welcome. Good morning. How are you, Nikki? Good morning, Chris. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Hey, now just tell us what you got up to over the Christmas break. Anything interesting? Um, well, I actually went down to Dunedin to see uh, my partner, and it was lovely. We saw the fur seals on the beach, wow. and yeah, yeah, nature walks. Uh, unfortunately, I did get a bout of tonsillitis while oh, I was my. down there. <laughs> uh, not ideal. Uh, not we, during a COVID pandemic. No, no, that's absolutely right. People would have been looking at you a little bit sideways. Right. Yeah. Well, it was quite funny, actually. I was laughing with somebody on the airplane uh, about if somebody asked where I was from to be like Christchurch. <laughs> yes. Well, that's the thing. For some of our listeners, they won't know that we've just come out of a like a 15-week lockdown in Auckland. That's right. Where we weren't allowed anywhere else in the country. So a flight down to Dunedin would have been quite a quite a quite a surprise for some people. <laughs> it was. It was. And I think I flew down the day after we got out of lockdown. So wow. it was sort of fresh off the the airplane. Fresh off the airplane being embraced by those people in the deep south as the Aucklanders arrive. Absolutely. And everybody <laughs> was very warm and lovely. So I can report I had a great time. They are warm and lovely down there. I mean, Dunedin is such a lovely town. Um, I spent 23 years down there, so I had a good taste of it. Uh, have you got any connections with Otago University's law school? Got- uh, well, that's a really interesting question. My um, partner was actually down there uh, working and uh, project managing with their um, security systems. So wow. yeah. uh, that's what he was doing. 
doing. But of course, um, I know quite a few of the academics uh, at University of Otago, um, and uh, we correspond about the various research areas and, um, you know, teaching pedagogy and that sort of thing. So, uh, cool. yeah. Yeah. Nice. We got to talk about class actions. And this is pretty exciting because New Zealand currently doesn't have a formal regulated class actions regime. And the Law Commission have been looking at this in a lot of detail. And I know you've been heavily involved in that, so I'm super excited about talking about it. Maybe the best place to start is just to ask you some questions about where are we at at the moment since we don't have a class actions regime? How does group actions or aggregate claims, how do they operate in New Zealand when we don't have a class action regime? Right. Well, it's actually really interesting because in essence, what we have in New Zealand is operating like a class action regime, although we don't have the formalized rules, the formalized civil procedural rules, which derives from statute. So we have High Court Rule 4.24, and it's got an equivalent in the district court rules. And essentially, that allows for aggregate litigation or what we call representative proceedings. And representative proceedings essentially allows um, parties with the same interest in the subject matter of the proceeding uh, to bring a claim together uh, where you've got one or two or, you know, how many named plaintiffs on behalf of a group um, and they're litigating those similar interests essentially to save um, on you know, time, uh, resources, financially, uh, and and essentially, you know, it's an access to justice, judicial economy issue. Oh, yeah. Okay, so Nikki, for for those that aren't familiar with class actions, uh, can you give us maybe an example? It doesn't actually have to be a real, you know, an actual example of of the type of claim in your mind or in your view would really be um, one suitable for a class action. What would be the the type of claim that might be brought? So there's a number of different types of class actions um, because class actions itself is a procedural device, right? Uh, So essentially what we're seeing is with more litigation funders entering the market in New Zealand, the rise of the consumer class action. So that might be class actions in relation to insurance payouts, so the Southern Response class action, uh, where um, the people who um, were... Um, insured by Southern Response, uh, claimed they didn't get paid out what they should have been, uh, and there was a class action against Southern Response to get that payout under the insurance policy. Uh, then you have um, bank fee litigation, for example. So there's a current class action happening with ASB and ANZ that was filed recently um, in relation to breach of the Triple CFA, which is the Credit Contracts Consumer Finance Act. Uh, you see a lot of shareholder and investor class actions. So uh, shareholders who uh, essentially sue uh, a company or company directors in relation to um, misrepresentations, for example, um, in their prospectuses, uh, et cetera. So there's CBL litigation, which is happening, uh, which is all in relation to um, disclosure and breaches around that. Okay. Well, just let's just think about the company prospectus as an example. Okay, um, we'll just—I'll just use a hypothetical name. Let's just say uh, Success Corporation. It's been a private company. It's looking like it's going to list on the New Zealand Stock Exchange, the Australian Stock Exchange. Uh, it issues a prospectus. Uh, that prospectus has representations in it that encourages people to think, well, the stock price, you know, um, might be worth. Let's just say a dollar a share. 
So I go, look, I've got a spare $1,000 that I want to chuck into this. And uh, I put my ring up my broker and say, I want to put a thousand into this this listing. And then it lists and it, and it just tanks. It just goes right down to, to, to 10 cents. And, and I've lost $900. And during the course of it, I, I review it and I go, oh, well, this perspective had a couple of statements in here. Like they said that they had a, a contract, which they didn't have. Um, and if I had known that, I wouldn't have invested. I wouldn't have lost my $900. But am I really going to sue the directors over nine hundred dollars, Nikki? Would I? Would I? Would Would you really no, do that? No, and you that's wouldn't. The whole purpose. I mean, one of the well, one of the main purposes for a class action is it's a way to recover um, small what we call small state claim. So why it wouldn't be economically feasible for you to sue for nine hundred dollars? Uh, and in fact, you would be in the disputes tribunal where there aren't lawyers if you're going to go down that road. But um, in any event, it's not economical because. You your, your legal fees, your filing fees are going to be far more, right, um, than you will ever get in recovery, even if you were to win because of the scaled costs provided in the rules. Uh, you then could join with other shareholders. So let's say, you know, there are, you know, 260 shareholders who have lost, you know, 100 or $1,000 each. And then all of a sudden, if you aggregate that amount, you're looking at a far larger damages sum. And at that stage, you can then attract third-party litigation funders to underwrite the costs of the litigation uh, for the benefit of the class. Of course, they're going to take their cut if you win. But the advantage is, is that the risk really lies with the funder uh, from a cost perspective. So they usually will pay the security for costs, for example. Example, uh, and um, and will also be in an advisory capacity in relation to to the litigation as it runs. Um, there are a whole bunch of issues because litigation funding isn't regulated in New Zealand. So uh, one of the things the Law Commission is looking at is regulating litigation funders. Uh, the reason being is that, as you can imagine, there could be potentially competing uh, interests at play, right? Like a funder might want to settle a case, whereas the class or the representative plaintiffs on behalf of the class don't want to settle. So whose interests should went out? Uh, how do we make sure that uh, vulnerable class members aren't being taken advantage of by uh, funders, making sure that funders um, are um, have adequate capital to be able to pay and underwrite um, the litigation? But also, too, I mean, if you know about the James Hardy litigation, which happened this past year, it was very... Or, or, or didn't happen, as the case may be. <laughs> Yeah. Well, in an unusual situation, right, we have, we're, you know, halfway through um, an extensive trial and you have the litigation funder paying the defendant, James Hardy, $1.25 million to settle, right, and to pull out. And there's an argument there, and you would have seen in the papers, some class members were disappointed and upset by that, right? Because as soon as it's discontinued the proceeding, um, then that's over for those people. And so one of the things is, you know, the Law Commission can regulate. There needs to be a sufficient notice period in the litigation funding agreements with the class, meaning that the class has an opportunity to see if there are any other funders out there in the market who would want to take the litigation on. It just allows some protections there, which we currently 
uh, don't have to the extent I think that we need. Okay, well, look, this class action procedural mechanism sounds amazing uh, in terms of access to justice, and presumably that's one of the objectives of a class action regime is to improve access to justice. Would you agree? I think access to justice is definitely um, a primary objective because it makes uh, litigation, which would be uneconomical on an individual basis, economical because you are putting the loss of a group together and you're aggregating that and you're using that power to level the playing field against often a government defendant or a corporate defendant, which is well-resourced. So you can afford uh, you know, lawyers who are experts in the subject matter and have lots of experience, for example, um, and uh, you can really um, make sure it's an, an even playing field. There are other reasons, though. So that's that's access to justice is definitely a primary reason. Um, well, what are the other reasons? So judicial economy is one. So, so that's um, like efficiency. That's right. Yeah. So from a court's perspective, instead of having, you know, 10, 20, 30, 1,000 little claims, you can hear all 1,000 claims if they have a similar interest in fact or law together. Right. So it saves on court time. It saves on costs. Um, it's efficiency. It also creates some certainty in the substantive law because you're having all the issues or the issues that are common determined together. So you are avoiding potentially uh, differing judgments come out. Right. Of competing claims that might be the same. So are you, are you talking about promotion of the rule of law, giving more transparency and certainty? I am. I am. Because, you know, if you look at procedure, procedure is so important and it's actually quite underrated um, in certain jurisdictions as a research area. And the reason I say it's so important is it is the framework upon which allows our substantive rights to be vindicated. Without procedure, right, then it doesn't matter. You can have all the substantive laws in the world. There's no way to have claims heard, for them to be enforced, and for those processes to be fair. Um, another, though... Just sorry. I don't mean to interrupt you sure. there, but I think picking up on that. So um, Australian High Court judge, now retired Michael Kirby, um, I mean, he, he's comment, commented on this uh, since retiring extrajudicially, sure. that it's all very well having substantive rules and laws for citizens, but if they don't actually have any way of accessing them or enforcing those rules, then the rule of law just becomes a cliche. Right. And and, and is this one of the, the areas that a class action regime could hopefully avoid and that is, uh, you know, promote the, the actual rule of law? Yes, it essentially provides um, the scaffolding or the monkey bars, to use a playground analogy, then to construct and build onto, right, um, to get where you're going. So um, you need the structure there in place to allow claims to be heard and vindicated. And the structure itself has a whole bunch of process values which underpin it. So what are the things that we value as a society that we want reflected in the way that we hear and determine disputes? And those could include things such as, um, you know, process legitimacy, um, procedural fairness, participatory governments, timeliness, efficiency, finality. These are all process values, and we weigh those because there can be tensions between them sometimes in determining what are the civil procedural rules that we are going to use to then allow for substantive rights to be heard and vindicated. Okay. Now, look, I seem to recall 
uh, one commentator in the US saying that the, the, the United States' introduction of a formal class action regime actually improved compliance with the law, like corporates became more responsible because of the fear that they could end up as a defendant in a class action. Do, do you have any views on that? Yes. Yeah, so uh, another reason uh, or another objective of a class action regime is corporate or government wrongdoing or deterrence. And um, essentially, class actions, because you can aggregate, right, for little losses, essentially, um, and 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 have a, a larger damages sum, um, from a risk perspective, an organization or a government might be more conscious of uh, doing something, whereas you might say with one individual, oh, well, it's only going to cost them $5, right, to mislead them about, let's say, a product, a toothbrush or something. I don't know. I'm, this is just hypothetically. Yeah, good example. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then all of a sudden, you know, where, you know, they might go, oh, well, it's only $5, so that person's not going to sue over that, so who cares about complying with X law, right? So it's a, a risk assessment, essentially. Um, they might say, well, actually, though, if they can aggregate and everybody who owns that toothbrush and you add all those $5 together and then you have a far bigger claim against you, uh, then there is more motivation to make sure that you are compliant, right? Because essentially that could um, really uh, impair the value of your business. Right. It sounds to me that uh, the absence, or should I say, if we did have a class action regime, that would have been probably helpful for those that had to live through the the, the, the leaky building crisis, uh, the second tier finance company failures uh, during and after the GFC, uh, and, and possibly even some, some of the, the, the Maori claims, Treaty of Waitangi type claims, to, to be able to to get these things off the ground where it wouldn't really work for an individual, uh, but may work for an aggregate group. Yeah. So actually, um, I did the first empirical study, uh, the first and the second, actually, empirical study on class actions in New Zealand. And what I found is um, those groups that you're talking about, there's been litigation in, in a large part of those. So, for example, the Maori claims back in 1902, uh, the first uh, class action that we have on record, a representative proceeding, as it was referred to then, um, is a, a, a Maori-based claim. So uh, one of the things the Law Commission is looking at is um, also, you know, whether iwi can use, right, this mechanism uh, against uh, the government uh, to, to vindicate their rights. So it has so many different uh, utilities. I mean, another area we haven't talked about is employment law, right? Yes, of course. Class actions yeah. um, can be used in employment law and are um, if there is a union in place or even if there's not a union in place. So, you know, for example, if people have been shorted, um, let's say, some pay for leave and it's been uh, an issue which has affected an you know, a large number of people, that could technically be a class action. So the utility of the device really is is expansive. Um, you know, we've also seen in the environmental space, uh, in particular overseas, the climate change issues, yes, right? Yeah. And trying to establish if there's a duty of care um, and that being, being a class action. Um, interestingly, there is a class action that's going to the human rights uh, 
Human Rights Commission, and it's the Dilworth in relation to the sexual abuse that happened. Oh, yeah, terrible is, situation. It is. Absolutely Shocking. horrible. But it's showing again um, that a class action can be used to get a litigation funder interested because that's funded by wow. LPF. Wow. Yes. So that's, that's amazing. Funded litigation. So essentially, um, I was looking this morning, actually, 116 survivors, um, I found in a news article, have joined so far that class action. And um, apparently a survey said that 22 of the survivors spoke or made a complaint to the school about the abuse. And so they allege that there's been a breach of a duty of care because one of the issues with something like a sexual abuse claim with multiple um, survivors is that you have to find the common issue of fact or law. And some of the facts, the facts are going to be very different because it's going to be very fact-specific on the abuse potentially that each of, or, or may not, there might be similarities, but you can imagine there might be some differences too between the cases. But if you can say this is the same issue of law, which is there is a duty of care, it was breached, and that caused the loss, right, then you can have a split trial to have liability determined um, in one respect or on a certain part of the cause of action, and then you can have a separate uh, trial for damages, let's say, Right. So rather than having uh, multiple trials, which could end up with different outcomes as to whether, you know, what the law actually is, I uh, hear you saying that this is a way to get the law position stated once yes. uh, for all of the uh, for all of the claimants as part of a, a group, a class. That's right. Well, now, look, uh, there are other examples of class action regimes overseas. Um, can you give us a couple of examples and, and your views on how they've operated? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the most commonly referred to are the United States, Canada, and Australia. Those are the three that are are most commonly discussed. But there are differences between the three. So part of the Law Commission's um, job is looking and learning from the experiences of those different jurisdictions so that we can have the benefit of their learnings and crafting ours. So we're in a really privileged position to be able to do that. Um, Starting first with the United States, uh, which really um, is... uh, Synonymous with class actions. When you think of class actions, we all think of Aaron Brockovich, right? Yeah, sure. Or, Good um, example. Ex- yeah. Or the Mark Ruffalo, the recent movie with Mark Ruffalo. Um, is it Deep Waters or Dark Waters? I always get it confused. My class always laughs about it. Um, but in any event, um, it's um, about the Teflon uh, litigation yes. and the poisoning that occurred. Um, but in any event, in the United States, you have these class actions. But in the United States, they get a bit of a bad name. Um, and the reason they get a bad name is because it's a different legal environment to New Zealand. So, for example, in the United States, the accident compensation scheme doesn't apply, meaning that you can sue for personal injury by accident. So there is a whole big group or area of litigation where you can successfully use class actions, which of course in New Zealand, you can't if it's covered by ACC unless you're going to seek exemplary damages. So um, that's one reason. The other reason is you have trial, lots of trial um, 
litigation where you have juries uh, in the United States. You can also get trouble damages. So you get these huge um, damages awards uh, in the United States from class actions, which corporations don't like. And they say it's oppressive and we're forced to settle. We have a gun to our head, metaphorically speaking. Um, but in New Zealand, we're far more conservative with our damages awards. Uh, and, and you know, the likelihood of, for example, a jury trial or um, alternatively, um, we don't have the trouble damages uh, situation. So there is um, some of the fear is what I'm trying to say that is associated with the class action um, doesn't uh, sit as well in New Zealand as it might in the United States. Well, we also don't have uh, here in New Zealand a, a, a contingency, uh, I guess, a permission to be able to charge on a percentage of outcome, right. uh, which I uh, understand is quite common in the US. I mean, I, I was involved in a, a law firm in a county attorney's office in New York in the 90s, and the uh, the plaintiff's attorneys all seem to be operating on a contingency arrangement, you know, no win, no fee, they take a third or sometimes even up to half the, the proceeds. And then you get individuals like uh, Melvin uh, ba- Bally, who, you know, the king of torts, had his own private jet and was able to bring the insurance companies to their knees um, and make you know, in terms of a lawyer's income, phenomenal sums of money, you know, tens of millions of dollars. Right. Because it becomes a business, right? I mean, I think once you get, when you allow lawyers to fund litigation, class action litigation, um, you're not only looking at the fees from the litigation, you're looking at a percentage of the recovery, which of course is uh, in the United States where that's allowed is a huge a huge benefit, right? But interestingly, uh, third-party litigation funders, because plaintiff lawyers can do that, aren't as prevalent, and there's far more ambulance chasing, I would say, uh, to use a colloquial term. Um, whereas, you know, in New Zealand and Australia and the UK, you have the third-party funders, right? Um, but interestingly, in Australia, um, you have Morris Blackburn, which does a lot of plaintiff class action litigation, and then they have a arm, which is a company, which litigates funds, um, which is actually really interesting and smart because the arm that funds litigation, I mean, who's in the best place to assess the risk of a case than lawyers? Well, we'd like to think so. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But in saying that, having worked with a couple of litigation funders, I mean, they do bring a higher level of commerciality. Um, they do. And the criteria for uh, accepting a, 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 to fund a case is often quite different to what a lawyer would have. Um, And certainly as lawyers, we've got a duty to take on any case that a client um, asks if we've got the expertise and the capacity. So we've got some aspects where we're somewhat restrained and and also obliged. Uh, One uh, Victorian, uh, Supreme Court of Victoria uh, judge uh, once said to me, or remain nameless, uh, that having had years of doing uh, class actions, he would only do them with a litigation funder. It's it's just too complicated and too risky for a law firm to take on a, a matter and fund it its, itself. I mean, do you have any views on that? Um, I'm I'm not surprised that um, he said that. I think when you have a third party funder, uh, you have the security there if you're the law firm acting of being able to make sure you get paid, right? Your yeah. fees get paid regardless of what happens. Uh, and that's and that's important, right? So um, if, you're, if you're practicing and you need to, you know, um, earn a living. So I think, um, and, the, and the commerciality that a funder brings, as you were saying, the commercial 
nous um, that they bring to the case can be very, very helpful. Um, if you have, you know, a plaintiff class who, um, you know, rightly so, may not know anything about the law because they haven't studied it. Um, they just know they've been wronged and, and, and they want, you know, a remedy for that. Um, so could I um, bring you back to, you were talking about the, the class action regime in, in the US. I mean, my understanding of uh, the, the US regime there, that's a fundamental difference, for example, to Australia, is around the issue of actually getting it up and going to start off with that, which they call the, the certification right. process. Um, what, what's the certification process and is that something the Law Commission's been looking at? Yes, Absolutely. So in the United States, um, you need certification to proceed as a class action. and um, so, so who gives the certification? The court does. The court does. Okay. The court does. So it is a, an interlocutory hearing, so a mini procedural hearing for those who uh, are listening who don't know what interlocutory means, um, to determine whether this case is appropriate to proceed as a class action. That's essentially the issue. And the court will look at is there a similar interest or, you know, a common issue of fact or law? They'll look at, you know, representation in the United States. They'll look at um, the amount at stake. There's a number of factors the court will consider and the parties can argue and you can imagine defendants will argue, no, this is not appropriate for a class action. So is don't it, want certification. Yeah. So is it the certification hearing? Is that where the real procedural battle takes yes. place. And that's early on, right at the start. It is. Okay. It is. So a lot of resources in the United States are, are put into that early procedural interlocutory application hearing. Uh, because if you can get it thrown out at that stage, i.e. the class isn't certified, well, then it's dead in the water, so to speak, and the, the, the plaintiff class have to pursue it as individuals. Okay. And of course, the flip side would be if, if a plaintiff group does get certification, uh, again, my understanding is is that a lot of class actions settle shortly thereafter because <laughs> the, the the defendants have realised well we've thrown a lot you know every the kitchen sink and everything at trying to stop the certification it's now gone through the reality is now starting to bite is that your understanding? Yeah, I mean there are a number that do get settled from a risk perspective. So, for example, uh, defendants will calculate out how much it's going to cost to run this thing through to the end of trial, uh, what are the chances of success versus failure, uh, and and what is a settlement offer that they can make, taking all of those factors into account to the plaintiff class, uh, essentially to to essentially be able to say to their shareholders, right, uh, this is the this is the payment, right? This is the risk. This is what we've settled it, and now that risk is gone. Um, you know, some of this is academic, I have to say, with the United States, because unfortunately, in my view, um, the Supreme Court has issued um, two judgments um, in particular, which essentially um, have allowed for defendants to contract out of class action litigation. Right. So, how, do, how does that work? So anything where there's a contract, okay, and it can even be uh, a contract of adhesion. So for example, terms and conditions, right, on the back of a product that you purchase. Uh, it might say, um, if there is any dispute between the parties being, you know, if you're buying and the person selling, um, that that dispute will be determined by individual arbitration. And you waive your rights to be able to um, to pursue it through the court system. And the Supreme Court has upheld those clauses in contracts to prohibit a class action through the courts. Well, well that seems to circumvent the whole 
regime. It does. It's oh. highly problematic. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, there have been, you know, academic articles uh, which have gone so far to say, well, this is going to be the death of the class action in the United States if, from a legislative perspective, something doesn't change or, you know, we get a sort of a, a different balance in the Supreme Court uh, who maybe aren't as business friendly. Uh, but it's, it's very concerning. And so my first academic article in New Zealand was talking about that issue and saying, you know, this is something that uh, we need to legislate to make sure that you can't contract out of class action litigation. Uh, and so, uh, and there's easy ways that you can do that, um, but there needs to be amendments made to the law. Yeah, well, otherwise it doesn't serve any purposes. Hey, let's bring it down under. Yes. Now, let's talk about the Australian class action regime, because we were talking about certification before, but the, the Australians take a different approach on the, on the certification. Uh, how, how do the Australians do it? So they don't have a certification process. <laughs> At all? No. <laughs> no, they don't. And um, and essentially, I think it was what you were saying. I mean, the argument is, is that they put so much time and energy and money into dealing with that sort of mini procedural hearing that it takes away from the substantive issues. Uh, and so, you know, instead, um, you would rely heavily in Australia on, for example, a strikeout application. So if you said this claim doesn't have merit or there isn't, you know, we're going to apply to strike it out or apply for summary, defendant summary judgment. Uh, so there are mechanisms there uh, to to stop unmeritous claims proceeding, uh, but it's it's a different it's a different system. Yeah, uh, look again, uh, and it's my understanding that you know, to meet the criteria of a class action, you've just got to have seven or more plaintiffs, right. so That's true. who all have a common interest in uh, either in facts or law, and off they go. But sometimes the battles around sort of that what. It's broadly called decertification, mm. and, and that is attempts by defendants to say this shouldn't be a class action. Right. Uh, yeah. Right. So yeah. the Australians started, they looked at this back in, I think it was 1988, their, uh, what was it, their Law Commission um, issued a, a, an issues paper, um, I think it's part of their Law Review um, Committee, and that, that led to a federal system known as Part 4A. Yes. And then there's a couple of state systems as well. So New South Wales and Victoria, they have their own class actions. And your point, I think, is really well made when you said this is a great opportunity for us here in New Zealand to look at a couple of decades of their regime, but more than a couple of decades now, it's a quarter of a century almost, uh, and see what learnings we could take from that, where it's worked and where it hasn't worked. And is that something the Law Commission has looked at? Oh, yes. Yes, Law Commission has been doing extensive work in this area. And not only, as I said, have they been looking at Australia, uh, but also Canada, for example, uh, and the United States, obviously. So um, the Australian regime, um, it's likely, um, I would say, that there will be some differences in New Zealand. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if there is a certification uh element uh, to the regime here. Um, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if um, there are some more uh, stringent regulations around things like common fund orders or funding equalization orders. So the issue when you have a funder involved uh, and you then have a pot of money, which is recovery, um, how do you make sure that the funder gets paid um, for those 
class members, from those class members who may not have signed up, for example, to a litigation funding agreement. So I think that there will be some issues uh, which uh, have gone through the court system in Australia, which we might take the benefit from and actually have procedural rules in New Zealand to create certainty for all parties involved. And I think that's a good thing, right? Because the idea is we want to uh, diminish the amount of money and time spent on interlocutories arguing over procedural issues, which easily can be regulated. And uh, that also will improve access to justice. It'll make litigation more economical. It'll create efficiency in the courts. There's really no downside. I mean, the issue is in New Zealand is we have, you know, a three sort of line (laughs) rule to do representative proceedings, but there's nothing to guide the courts on the actual procedural um, undertaking of how to manage these class actions. And so you get in the Feltex, you know, case is a great example of this, you know, the number of interlocutories going up and down from to the Supreme Court um, before you even get sight of a trial to determine substantive issues. Yeah, look, I think Justice French in the Feltex litigation made a comment along the lines that the absence of class action rules is creating difficulties for the parties in that case. And then the Supreme Court, because it, it did pop up there, uh, agreed with that and said that's a justified comment. You know, the absence of having class action rules has made it really difficult for the parties. Well, that's right. And actually in 2008, uh, the Rules Committee drafted draft rules. So already um, there was an identification of this issue back in 2008, and the drafting got quite advanced. But I then, think there was actually a bill. They, they actually yes, had a draft bill. That's and, right. That's and it was right. Give, given over as a, myster, um, a ministerial report with a view that um, Cabinet would approve it and say, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, and, like, then, and then it stopped, essentially. Why did it stop? Do we know? Um, that's a really interesting question. There are um, differing views that certain... Um, interests who shall remain nameless uh, were not a fan a fan of the um, the procedure proceeding, and so uh, essentially it was uh, killed. All right, it was <laughs> it was taken outside and executed. That's right. I'm, I'm not going to be naming names, no. um, but 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 you know around the uh, the legal watering holes, um, certain, oh. there's a certain name that's mentioned very okay. commonly. Well. Um, can we talk about another rule that we have here in New Zealand in our High Court rules? It's uh, Rule 1.6, and the, the essence of that rule is that the rules, and it's kind of an aspiration, I kind of regard it as an aspirational rule rather than actual substantive rule, is that the rules should be applied in such a way as to give just, speedy, and inexpensive determinations of you know your interlocutory hearings and your substantive hearings. It is... On the flip side, you know, act as devil's advocate, if we introduce a, a whole new part to the rules and then really regulate it, is, is there going to be a conflict with having just and speedy and expensive determinations of matters or are we just going to overcomplicate things and uh, get matters dra- you know, dragged into and, and held down for too long? It's really a question of guidance, right, and not having guidance. At the moment... It's a little bit like a black hole, right? You're kind of feeling your way out and you're allowing the courts to make up procedure um, using their inherent jurisdiction as they go along. Now, when I say they're making up procedure, I I say that a little bit um, in jest because obviously uh, they'll look overseas, uh, precedent overseas. Um, They'll be bound by precedent here to the extent there's a court superior that's decided the issue um, and they'll take submissions from counsel on the best way to proceed. Uh, But... uh, 
every judge who gets one of these cases, okay, and his case managing it, essentially uh, has to look at case law, right, or overseas jurisdictional procedure to determine the best way to handle these class actions in New Zealand. And so why don't we have a roadmap? Why don't we have a guide or a roadmap uh, so that plaintiffs and defendants and the judiciary uh, know what they're dealing with? How do you get a class action off the ground? Uh, is um, you know certification going to be an issue? How do we give notice to class members to see if they want to join? Should we have opt-in or opt-out class actions, right? Uh, so opt-in being class actions where uh, you have to join the class if you want to be bound by the judgment and res judicata apply. Opt out is you're automatically considered part of the class unless you expressly opt out, okay, and res judicata applies. So there are a whole bunch of uh, issues. I mean, settlement approval. Settlement approval is a big one uh, to have what, how does the court determine whether to approve a settlement or not if it's in the best interest of the class? You know, what if the litigation funder wants it and the class doesn't? All of these issues we can have regulation around, which gives a roadmap and will cut down on time and costs for the parties because they're going to be arguing about the issues anyway. And so ho- hopefully it'll bring some consistency as well. Right. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Do you think there's an argument here that you know group aggregate litigation, it's not like individual litigation um, as such. Do you think there's an argument that might might well exist to support that the High Court bench, because I'd imagine a lot of these class actions, if there was a regime put in place at a first court of instance, will be the High Court, that there should be specialisation in terms of the judges hearing it so that you have a judge who has some expertise or specialisation in group litigation rather than I'll just use, for example, uh, a former lawyer spent their entire career uh, as a as a family lawyer, or or perhaps as a uh, as a criminal defence lawyer, what's your views on specialisation around group litigation? Well, I don't have an issue with it. I think that um, you know at the moment we do have certain lists in the court, like the commercial list, for example. We have certain judges which sit on that. Um, I think that having an expertise and making sure there's consistency in the determination of these proceedings is going to be important, and that's why we're trying to uh, regulate it in the first place. Uh, so in, in principle, I don't have an issue with having judges who are experts in the area of navigating uh, these causes of, you know, these 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 claims. Um, whether, in fact, that will be required is, a, is another story. Yeah, no, good, good point. Okay, well, so you talked about, uh, let's talk about the detail um, of, of how this might all look. And I guess the starting point is this whole, we've talked about certification. Um, you mentioned in passing about costs and that the, the, the regime could regulate uh, funding and costs and, and how that would work. Uh, what's some of the detail around that? Well, so the biggest issue around, well, there's a couple of issues around costs, right? The first issue is from um, a defendant's perspective, <laughs> wanting to make sure that you can have security for costs. So if there's not a funder involved, you might be very, very nervous whether uh, if you are successful in defending the class action uh, and you get an order for the defend, uh, plaintiffs to pay some of your costs, they won't be able to afford it. So the first issue um, is whether uh, you can get security for costs against a third-party funder. Um, the answer to that is 
yes, it's already in case law, but obviously we can put that to um, bed essentially if it's regulated to make sure that that's allowed. Would, would security for costs be, I mean, I'd imagine that during the, the life cycle of a class action, uh, defendant's costs just continue to keep going up and up and up. Um, like would a defendant right at the very beginning say, hey, look, you know, we're going to spend $5 million defending this, we want $5 million in costs paid up front, or would it be on a staggered basis? How, how do you think that well, would you operate? Could, you could do it either way. Right. You could do it either way. You could have interlocutory orders or interlocutory applications um, at various stages in the proceeding uh, if costs were really blowing out. Um, So, I mean, there's an advantage, obviously, to get as much security as you can up front, right? Because then it's it's sitting in the court coffers and and you know it's there if if you if you're successful. But but to answer your question, I mean the other side of it, the biggest issue is if, as I said, you have class members who are not a party to the litigation funding agreement, so they have not signed a contract with the funder, the third party funder, to say if we are successful, then you are going to get X amount of money, and we have what they call the free writing issue. So okay. the class... How does, how, does, how does the free writing issue work? So essentially you have a class member uh, who isn't a party to the litigation funding agreement, but they get the benefits or the fruits of the litigation. They get a payout because it's successful, but they haven't had to pay the funder. Right? right, because there's no contractual obligation to do so. So there are a couple of different ways to get around that issue. Um, the court can um, look because this has been a problem in Australia. It like has the been. Australians have struggled with this one, and that is uh, a group get together, they fund some litigation, they do all the hard yards, the hard mahi, and then in comes these these off freeloaders. They just come in and sweep them behind, no risk, no investment, and they get payouts as well. Right. Yeah. So 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 the issue c- can be dealt with by you know common fund orders or funding equalization orders. Um, those are two different mechanisms essentially to claw back money from those parties which um, are not um, those plaintiffs which aren't party class members who aren't party to the contract uh, with the funder. So, um, yeah, but I think, I think you know, in, in Australia, there's been a lot of litigation um, around whether those um, actually um, – are, are legal, essentially. So whether the court has jurisdiction to make those orders. Um, that, that's binding someone who's not a party to any of the litigation at all. Right. It's just s- sitting in the wings. That's right. But but has an interest in it because they would ordinarily fit within the class. That's right. Yeah. Well, and they're getting the benefit, right? Had, had the funder not done the hard work and paid to underwrite the litigation, then they wouldn't be sitting there with a remedy, right? Well. Um, so so it's, <laughs> it's a tricky, it can be a tricky issue. So I think, you know, to avoid the masses of litigation and the complexity, right, around that issue that's happened in Australia, uh, in New Zealand, uh, that is something that the Law Commission should should regulate. Well, it's also something I'd imagine funders would want to have regulated. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, slightly related, let me ask you this. Uh, what about the scenario of competing class actions where you've got um, law firm, say your old law firm um, uh, sets, Minter Elson sets up a class action, uh, it's got a funder in place, uh, files the originating application to get uh, get the get the order to, to enable it to start, does all that and then uh, having that happen, uh, another law firm comes in and goes, 
oh, well, we've now seen it done, it's worked, we're going to set up a class and do the same thing. What, what, how does that work? So this is an issue um, which actually has happened in New Zealand in the CBL litigation, uh, where you had um, two different competing class actions with different groups of uh, shareholders that are represented by the two different law firms. And so there's a number of ways that you can deal with that, and different jurisdictions deal with it differently. Um, The worst way you could deal with it, in my view, is first to file, the first to file rule. So it's a rush to to the court footsteps, um, where you you purely go with uh, the lawyer's and the um, representative plaintiffs that filed first in time. Uh, I think that's not the way to go, but that is one way to go. Um, What I think is better is um, either looking to see out of um, the different uh, class or representation, um, the court can determine which firm and group of representative plaintiffs is in the best position to represent the best interests of the class. So that would be an interlocutory hearing. And so you would pick one to to represent the class as opposed to the other, and the other proceeding would be stayed. That's one way to proceed. Another way to proceed is to allow both class actions to occur. Um, it would have to be on an opt-in basis uh, because opt-out wouldn't work. Uh, but if you had two competing class actions on an opt-in basis that are essentially heard and managed together, uh, so you then have your your classes and your both your groups of funders who um, essentially um, would be able to have their representation and have recovery. Um, so um, in Canada, they call it, um, you know, the motion of carriage. So who's carrying the litigation? Yeah. There's competing class actions and they look at all those factors that I was talking about before of who's in the best position, what's the nature of the claims, um, you know, looking at representation. Mm. Um, but um yeah, so different different ways. And again, this is something that the Law Commission is looking at to make sure that we have some rules around this, because at the moment, we don't. At the moment, uh, if there are competing class actions, the court really has to look to overseas for guidance. Okay. Um, now, of course, Nikki, as we know, uh, most civil litigation settles. Most of it does. I mean, it's, it's really only the well, – it's not really only the cases that proceed to trial – that we really hear about. I mean, we do hear about settlements. We don't generally get the details of them. But under this regime, there'll be a settlement approval process and uh, some rules around that. What what can you tell us about that? Well, essentially, um, once there is a settlement agreement, there has to be an opportunity for, for example, class members who object and don't want to be bound by it to register and be heard on their objection by the court. Um, We call them objectors, (laughs) objectors, <laughs> surprisingly, <Yeah. laughs> or not. Sure. Um, so that's the first issue with settlement approval. Um, the second issue is the court figuring out whether the settlement is actually in the best interest of the class, because you might have funders and class members who have different interests. And so you have a third party um, judge who has the oversight to make sure that vulnerable plaintiffs are protected. And it's a settlement which uh, isn't... Um, grossly out of proportion or line um, with something that they would be entitled to. Often in that situation, you can get the court who appoints a third-party expert, so a QC or um, a, you know, a third-party lawyer who looks over the settlement agreement and assesses the risks and the expense um, versus um, you know the merits of the claim and 
takes a step back to say whether this is a reasonable settlement in light of the situation. Um, so, and that report can help guide the judge, right, which is outside of the parties, uh, to have that expert report uh, to help the judge know whether whether that to approve the settlement or not. It's really, um, it's really a safety mechanism there to make sure that um, that the rights of absent class members um, aren't being abused. Okay. Um, would it also, I guess, address the potential uh, conflict of interest between, or the interests between, for example, the plaintiffs uh, and the litigation funder? Because they can have, they're not nece- their interests aren't necessarily always aligned. Um, the funder's interest is presumably just purely financial, whereas the plaintiffs who have suffered the wrong might want a bit of vindication. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that and that's why we have the objector process where you can object and you can actually opt out at that stage. So you can say, actually, I no, thank you. Um, I don't want to be a part of this settlement agreement. I object and um, I want my rights back. Thank you. And I'll and I'll you know run this litigation on my own. OK, so you can at that stage pull out if you don't want to be bound by the settlement agreement. But you need um you need a mechanism in place to do that. I mean, sometimes at this stage, the other thing the courts consider is Cypre issues. So Cypre issues is where you have a you know a pot of money and there's unclaimed funds. So for whatever reason, class members may not be aware or they don't can't be bothered, but there's money that isn't claimed. So what do you do with that money? Do you sure. give it back yeah. to the defendants or do you give it to a charity uh, which has some sort of commonality or interest with the uh, wrong that has occurred to the class? Um, there's a whole bunch of issues around where that money goes, and that can also be determined at the settlement approval hearing stage. Um, something that funders don't want, and I can understand this, is for um, commissions and for payment to be determined out of the settlement agreement um, at that stage, because funders sure. want more certainty than that. Yeah. And so, you know, at the certification part of the hearing, you can deal with litigation funding issues around commission rates, et cetera, all at the same time. And so therefore, the funder has certainty uh, as to what they're going to be able to recover at the end, as opposed to the risk of not having, and then that being determined at the settlement. Why wouldn't they deal with that up front right at the very beginning for a litigation funder so that they know they're getting, for example, they're getting one third of the net uh, proceeds recovered? Well, again, the issue is, is it's only for those people who've signed the agreement. Right, yeah. So, so the free rider issue. So the free rider issue needs to be taken care of at the beginning, not at the end of the litigation, because oh, well. you can do it either way, right? And, you know, historically in Australia, it's been something which has been occurring historically at the end. And that creates huge risk from a funder's perspective, sure. <laughs> as you can imagine. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you have 20 people signed up to a litigation funding agreement, but yet there's, you know, an opt-out uh, class action with, you know, thousands of members, you're going to be nervous as a funder. Okay. Hey, so look, we're kind of coming to the tail end of this. I'll just ask you some questions about where from here. Like, what are your predictions on when I can expect I'm going to have a whole new part in the high court rules <laughs> that I have to read and try and get my head around? When do you think that might happen? And if it does, what are the steps that have to take place between now and then? Right. Okay. So pulling my crystal ball out. Yeah. Let's get that crystal ball out. <laughs> let's have a look at it. It's in my yeah. bag. Let me just yeah. grab it. Right. Um, look, I think this year, 
2022. The Law Commission. No, no, no. All right. Not, oh, not the, okay. not the, not the <laughs> <laughs> Let's not get ahead of ourselves breathe, breathe, here. Breathe, Chris. Breathe. Yeah. Right. No, no, no. No, the Law Commission's report will come out this year, yep. in 2022. Um, and that report, um, I... Um, in my in my personal point of view, is likely to recommend uh, that there is a formalised regime. Well, they seem to be pointing to that in all of the issues papers. You do get the sense that the Law Commission really sees that there's a, a real benefit here that outweighs the disadvantages. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I would agree with that. So they're going to come out, I would imagine, with a pretty substantial report. Right. Um, of final recommendations. Uh, and that is report will likely include uh, some draft rules, well, right? Uh, and from there... And, and and possibly a draft act. Yes. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There is yeah. going to need to be an act. So it can't just be a rules committee issue where no. we insert some high court rules. There needs to be a jurisdictional basis for that. So we will have some version of a, I imagine, and this is... <laughs> Class Action Act. <laughs> yes, the Class <laughs> Action Act. That's that's. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know what it's going to be called, but you know, that's just you know me pulling it out of the air. A name. It would make sense. Yeah, that's it, <laughs> it's it's logical. Yeah, um, yeah. And then and then from there, you would have rules coming out from that, uh, and. You know, after the Law Commission gives its recommendations, it really becomes a parliamentary issue. And I can imagine there will be heated debate about it, right? Mm -hmm. So you'll have uh, the minister who will put forward the bill for the first reading, and there will be a, um, as we know, you know, the readings, the voting, the um, able to... The select committee stage. That's right. That's right. I'd imagine the insurance companies will have some views. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. It was funny. I, in 2018, did um, a symposium, a class action symposium um, at the University of Auckland and invited um, international experts from around the world to talk about class action reform. And we had in the audience um, insurance companies who had sent over um, insurers who were very senior in Australia to the conference because they were very interested in hearing but also having a hand in the discussions of what was going to happen. So, you know, people who... um, That was a great symposium, by the way. I was there. Yeah, no, it was really good. No, no, you did an amazing job. Well, it was so, you know, it was, I think it was one of those sort of watershed moments if I'm going to be, you know, the stars sort of aligned. It was sort of my interest area, right time. It was a hot topic. And, you know, we had the Law Commission um, there you know, Douglas White, who was the president at the time, we had a number of judges from the different courts. Um, you know, it was a who's who was there of QCs. It was an amazing conference. Yeah, and I, I was sitting way up the back. I'm not that sort of high <laughs> up in the pecking order. <laughs> well, well, what was great from it, though, is that we had a special editions. New Zealand Business Law Quarterly, all the papers went into a two-part, two-volume special edition on, on, you know, class actions and litigation funding. And I really think from there... It really springboarded uh, the Law Commission's interest and the subsequent um, uh, acceleration of the process. Yeah, okay. And do you think that uh, the introduction of a class actions regime might um, perhaps herald uh, the arrival of some of the Australian plaintiff firms, you know, Morris Blackburn, et cetera, to actually set up shop here in, here in Aotearoa? Well, possibly. I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't put it out of the question. Of course, the f- litigation funding arm of Morris Blackburn, of course, very active in New Zealand yeah. um, in funding litigation, which is happening already. Um, and that is, you know, that is definitely a, a possibility. Um, having said that, you know, it's 
it's big business and, you know, you see law firms here, which are already, you know, the sort of, you know, Bell Gullies and, um, you know, Russell McVeigh and some of the bigger name firms, which are involved in class actions, whether that be from a defendant or a plaintiff standpoint. So I don't think uh, if Morris Blackburn were to jump the ditch and start shop, you know, set up shop here, um, that they would have a monopoly by any stretch of the imagination. That's not going to change the legal landscape no, too no, much. It's not. So we, 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 we can look forward to a, a detailed, uh, lengthy law commission report. <laughs> Just some could, light bedtime some reading. Some light bedtime reading um, <laughs> that we can all deep dive into. And, and look, um, maybe there's an idea there for another podcast, get one of the law commissioners in to, to, to tell us about it. I'll, I'll, I'll think about that one. Yeah. Um, and then possibly, depending on how the legislative calendar is looking, you know, because we have got an election coming up, I think it's next year um, as such, we might actually see uh, some legislation starting to pass through the uh, the, the mechanics. Yes. Uh, and we could have a, a, a new regime uh, here in New Zealand, some, you know, 25 years after Australia, but better better late than never. That's right. That's mm. right. And I'm, you know, I'm fairly um, positive and confident that uh, this report will um, lead to uh, actual legislation this time around. Wow. So we don't want a yeah. repeat of 2008. Uh, and I think it's because all parties concerned, for the most part, I mean, you do have some outstanding insurers and some outstanding corporate interests who are against it. Um, but I think even for those parties, it's in their interests that they have certainty because otherwise they're going to be throwing more money at trying to figure out what the procedure is when it's something that we can easily legislate and make clear to everybody involved. So, and, and, and two, I will say this, you know, the Law Commission they're not determining this in a vacuum, right? They are considering insurers and defend corporate defendants, governmental defense point of view, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's about striking with the rules that right balance, which um, gives weight to concerns on both sides of the fence. And um, the Law Commission is trying really hard to do that. And so I'm, I'm excited about the prospect, and I think it's needed. I think the judiciary will be over the moon if it happens. Sure. Um, and we want to keep them happy. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, it's an exciting time. And, and hey, watch the space. That's, I think, what we need to do. Yes. Well, look, Nikki Chamberlain, thank you so much for coming on the Law Down Under podcast this morning. It's been absolutely fascinating and interesting. And also, thanks for all your work as well that you're doing uh, on the class actions, because it's it's people like you that are going to make sure that uh, we end up with a, a regime that's going to be fit for purpose yes. and is going to work. So thank you for that. And thank you very much for coming on board. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely delightful. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Law Down Under podcast. You're welcome to join in on the discussion via my podcast page, which you can access at patterson.co.nz. That's p-a-t-t-e-r-s-o-n dot c-o dot n-z. Thanks for supporting the podcast and tune in again for more on the law, its application and the future of the law here down under.